Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Soft and Blue, a song by a band out of Columbus called Damn That Witch Siren. Isn't that a great name? That's awesome. There are featured Ohio musical artists this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'd love to tell you more about them, how to find their music, where to find them performing, and we'll play the rest of that song for you. Right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent an award-winning 30-year career at the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. All right, Paula, I can't wait to hear what you have for us tonight. But first, we need to give out a grateful shout-out to new Patreon supporters, Lisa and Molly. Thank you so much for helping us keep fresh logs on the fire. We not only don't get paid for doing this podcast, we actually pay fees out of our own pocket. And having people like Lisa, Molly, and our other Patreon supporters, Mary, Beth, Kim, Barb, and Tootie, really make a difference in our ability to do this week after week. If you'd like to help out, our Patreon account will accept donations as small as a buck a month. You can find a link to it on our website. Yes, thank you, ladies. And now it's time to earn our keep. I've got a real head scratcher of a mystery for you, Steve. What if I told you that a convicted child killer has been on the lam for 45 years because prison officials let him go Christmas shopping at the mall by himself? What? I kid you not. Some of our listeners might have heard this recently on the news because the U.S. Marshals have made a renewed effort to catch this guy. He'd be 75 years old now. But let me start at the beginning, and when I'm done, we are going to welcome with us Phil Trexler, a longtime journalist and WKYC producer, to be our armchair detective and share some things about this case that you aren't going to hear anywhere else. But before we get to the prison escape, we need to revisit the crime. I want you to meet Mary Ellen Diener. In 1965, she's a 14-year-old student at John Simpson Junior High in Mansfield, Ohio. She lives on West Dixon Avenue with her mom, Cassie, and her siblings. Mary Ellen was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1951, and her dad still lived there. 
But her mom moved to Mansfield when she was just an infant, and it was the only home she'd ever known. She was a good student, A's and B's, and she was on the school newspaper staff and in the glee club. She attended the Temple of Faith Church of God, but even at the age of 14, she decided she wanted to become a Catholic nun. Oh, wow. Yeah, her mom said she was always bringing home Catholic literature and reading books about nuns and talking about how she thought that that was how she saw herself being of service to people. So November 14, 1965, is a Saturday night, and it's late, very late. Mary Ellen and her 12-year-old sister, Brenda Sue Diener, they set off for the half-hour laundromat on Spring Mill Street to do some washing at 10.30 p.m. Well, that's not strange. You, you're acting like that's kind of strange. You just told me you go to Walmart at midnight. This is a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old that's a little, taking yeah, that's, a taxi that's a to the laundromat on yeah. a Saturday night. Okay. But uh, it's their chore. And the girls go. They're at the laundromat, and they end up running out of the right denomination of change. Mary Ellen has four quarters left, but the machines need nickels and dimes. So Mary Ellen tells her younger sister to sit tight. She's going to go get smaller change. And she walks to a gas station at the corner of Spring Mill and Bowman. She was not successful in getting change there. I can almost see some clerk insisting she buy something. And I hope after all is said and done, the person who wouldn't give her change at that gas station really regrets that decision. Because now Mary Ellen has to come up with another plan. And they discuss option B, walking to another laundromat further away on North Mulberry Street. So Mary Ellen leaves again. She's gone a long time. And Brenda gets really anxious about what happened to her big sister. So Brenda leaves the laundromat and walks to her grandmother's house. It's nearly 1 a.m. now, but thankfully, Mrs. Williams lives just a few doors away. Once there, they call the girl's mother, who asks her mother, please go look for Mary Ellen. Now, Mrs. Williams may not have had a car because she leaves her house on foot, and she heads for the Mulberry laundromat. As she approaches her destination, she sees the flashing lights of police cars in front of a vacant house. She pulls an officer aside and asks, what's going on? She tells the officer her granddaughter is missing. And that's when she learns the police have found a body in the backyard. They ask her to take a look, and it is Mary Ellen. She's lying face up, one arm is outstretched, and her fist is open, spilling nickels and dimes onto the ground. Police had received a call at 12.49 a.m. from a neighbor who reported seeing the body in the yard. Richland County Coroner Robert Wolford will determine she had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the abdomen, with a thirty-two caliber pistol, then struck in the head multiple times with a brick, either after she was unconscious or after she was dead. Now, Steve, this case is going to be solved at lightning speed. During a routine check of recent gun purchases, police learn a 32 caliber pistol had been sold at a Diamond Street hardware store a month earlier to Lester Edward Eubanks, a 22-year-old resident of North Mulberry Street. Now, who's Lester Eubanks? They get an answer to that fast. When Eubanks was 16, he was convicted of assaulting a 12-year-old girl in Mansfield. He was placed on probation in that case, 
and released to his father until his 18th birthday. And on the day he killed Mary Ellen Diener, he was awaiting trial in yet another assault case, the attempted rape of an 18-year-old waitress in the kitchen of a restaurant three months earlier. In that case, he was released on a $5,000 bond. So these motives are sexual assault. Absolutely. So police feel pretty good they've got their man. They go to Eubanks' apartment just down the street from the crime scene. And when he arrives home that afternoon, they take him into custody. They haul him to the police station where he promptly confesses to the murder. It's only been 17 hours since Mary Ellen was killed. While he's being charged with first-degree murder, officers searching the crime scene find a 32 caliber gun that matches the serial number of the gun sold to Eubanks. And they find a bag with some bullets and shells. They were hidden in some lumber outside a house on Mulberry. Later that week, a grand jury hands down a double-barreled indictment. First-degree murder and murder while attempting rape. Good, get that monster. Yeah, that is a combination that carries the possibility of the death penalty. Eubanks pleads not guilty so he can get his day in court. And when the time came, he actually took the witness stand. He admitted he'd been out earlier that night, going back and forth between two bars and consuming a lot of beer and whiskey. At one point, he went for a walk along Mulberry Street to clear his head. He saw Mary Ellen in the Mulberry laundromat as he walked past it. And soon after, he heard steps running up from behind, so he stepped off the sidewalk and turned. When the girl was within arm's reach, she stopped and asked what he was doing. He told her he didn't like people running up behind him. She was carrying a soda pop bottle. He reached for it. She screamed, and he grabbed her and dragged her into the backyard. He said he pulled his gun, hoping to convince her to be silent, but that she reached for the gun, and it went off. Yeah, twice. Wow. Eubanks went back to his apartment just two doors away. He emptied the live bullets and spent shells into a brown paper sack for disposal. He said he stood looking at himself in the mirror, crying and shaking. He gave two stories about what happened next. In the trial, he said he began to wonder if he could do something for the girl. After all, he had been an army medic. He testified that he went back to the crime scene, checked her pulse, and that when he determined she was dead, hit her with a brick out of anger (laughs) himself. But in the written confession he gave police, he said he returned to the crime scene because he was afraid the girl wasn't dead and might live to identify him. So he went back, hiding the gun and sack of bullets along the way. He picked up a paving brick, and when he found her lying lifeless, he beat her in the head several times to make sure she wouldn't be getting back up. Eubanks returned to his apartment again, changed his clothes, then went to a female friend's apartment. The two of them and another man got a taxi and went to an all-night diner for sandwiches. Then he spent the night with his female friend. Now get this. He awoke the next day, went to Sunday school and church, had lunch with his pastor. Oh, that makes it better. Then arrived home that afternoon to find the police waiting for him. At the end of Eubanks' trial, there was a surprise witness. That waitress had attacked three months earlier. She was allowed to tell her story. Good. 
She told how she was working in her family's restaurant in the North End when Eubanks came in at 11.30 p.m., and she had seen him before. He was a black belt in karate and had given demonstrations at her high school. He ordered coffee and shrimp, and she went to the kitchen to put the shrimp in the fry basket and was startled because he had followed her in and come up behind her. He asked to use a restroom, and she pointed the way, but she had a bad feeling about him. And sure enough, when he came back out of the restroom, he returned to the kitchen. She tried to go past him, but he grabbed her, pushed her into the restroom, and choked her until she passed out. Well, the jury heard enough. He was found guilty and sentenced to die in the electric chair on October 27, 1966, four days before his 23rd birthday. October 27th, my birthday. On your birthday. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know, of course, appeals moved that date many times. And in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional, and everyone under a death sentence had their sentence changed to life in prison without parole. Eubanks was one of 44 on death row in Ohio. The very next year, Eubanks, who had been on death row just a few months earlier, was now considered a model prisoner. And on December 7, 1973, his jailers decided as a reward for good behavior, he and four other convicts could go Christmas shopping by themselves at a local shopping center. That's ridiculous. So they drove them to the Great Southern Shopping Center in Columbus, released them into the Christmas shopping populace, and told them when to report back to the vehicle. The others returned. Eubanks did not. The 30-year-old walked away, and he's never been seen again. Now, I couldn't find any evidence in newspaper accounts that authorities were looking very hard for him. There were hardly any stories. In 1991, Mary Ellen's sister, Myrtle Carter, she kind of took things into her own hands. She pleaded for his family to have a conscience. She wrote a letter to the Mansfield paper addressed to them. Assist us in seeing Lester Eubanks gets what he has avoided for so long, she wrote. He has had 48 years. She only had 14. It's not fair. In 1994, America's Most Wanted featured Eubanks on the national television program. Dozens of calls came in on the day it aired, but he still eluded authorities. Then last year, the U.S. Marshal's Office learned of the case and promoted Eubanks to their top 15 most wanted. There's a promotion for you. They didn't care he was 75 years old. They said they had good reason to think he was still alive, and Leeds placed him in either Michigan or California. Peter Elliott, U.S. Marshal of the Northern District of Ohio, said the U.S. Marshals are not deterred by the passage of time when it comes to cases like this one. We are fueled by one thing, and that is justice for 14-year-old Mary Ellen Diener. Anyone with information is urged to call the marshals at 800-336-0102. There's a $25,000 reward for information directly leading to Eubanks' arrest. Yeah, the reason why I asked how old this was is because I've heard of stuff like this. Carl Panzram, one of the most famous drifter serial killers, he was allowed to go to bars at night. Oh, my gosh. He'd come back, but one night he decided not to come back. Wow. All right. Well, it sounds like a good time to bring in our armchair detective. Ohio Mysteries listener will remember this one, Phil Trexler. 
He helped us walk through an unsolved murder of Raymond Timbrook, which I listened to recently again, by the way. That was a good one. Yeah. And he's also very familiar with this case. So let's bring him in. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. I understand your connection to this case goes back to your rookie year as a journalist. Yeah, it was 1991. Uh, Strangely enough, when uh, Mary Ellen's family wrote that letter to the Mansfield News Journal. If you'll notice in your research, you probably did not find a story. You found a letter to the editor, but you never found any stories. In the That's news. right, I didn't. Pretty strange. Why? Pretty strange that a, that a family member writes that letter and asks for help. And there's no story. And the hometown newspaper doesn't even... Is there a story behind there being no story? Well, as a matter of fact, there is, I think. I, you know, it was my first... And just to clarify, we're talking about the Mansfield News Journal. Correct. Okay, go. Uh, Mansfield News Journal, it was my first job as a newspaper reporter. Uh, I had the police beat that required me to be at the Mansfield Police Station every morning at 6 a.m. to go through police reports, uh, make contacts with folks you know, run the beat. We'd come back, write my stories for 8.30 a.m. deadline. We were a mid, midday newspaper. So anyways, at some point, you know, I, it was probably that letter that sparked my interest in the case initially. So I reached out to the family. They were all on board to do a story, kind of updating everybody where the case stood. Um, I was just blown away by the circumstances of his escape. Uh, like everybody who hears it, it's just mind-boggling to think that we take a condemned killer and drop him off at the mall with three other guys and just, let, you know, expect him to report back. My thought was, why did these three other guys come back, too? That's even, yeah. more, that's even more stranger. That's even stranger. <laughs> why did any of them come right, back? Exactly. But I pitched the story to the, uh, my editor, and I was doing it. I was uh, moving along, and obviously I reached out to uh, Mr. Eubanks' father, the Reverend Mose Eubanks, a prominent. He was a minister? His, yes, Lester is the son of a minister and a prominent minister uh, in the city of Mansfield. And yeah, that didn't come out in the stories. No. So through the course of doing the story, I obviously reached out to Reverend Eubanks, thinking that he'd want to cooperate with the story. Total different, opposite reaction from him. He was offended that I reached out to him, wanted nothing to do with us, hung up the phone, and apparently contacted my editor. Because when I got back to the newsroom, the story that I was planning to do was no longer a story. And we didn't, I was told not to pursue it, not to do the story. My hunch is that the Reverend Eubanks contacted my editor and persuaded him in some fashion to, to kill the story. And he succeeded. You and I, never, I, didn't, I left the paper you know, a year later. And you know what? I, I read the trial coverage of this of his trial. And there was a point where a officer gave testimony that when he was brought down, when Lester Eubanks was brought to the police station, they called in his father and they held each other and cried. And I'm almost positive that story never referred to his father as the Reverend. It's almost like they were protecting that element of the story for some reason. It may have been. It's possible he was not a minister at that time. I don't know the history, how long he was a minister, but certainly he was He was a minister. He was a prominent minister, well-respected, had his own church. Um, yeah, and you know, if you look, listen to the, the transcripts of the trial, this was not 
one of those, uh, you know, 1960s civil rights violations where a black man was framed for a murder. I mean, he, he admitted it. Quickly. Uh, it wasn't a who done it, you know, and it was a why he done it, and we still don't know. But um, was there anything going on culturally that might have played into the the pressures uh, my, the, at the my newspaper at the newspaper or in the country? Yeah, I think so. I think back in 1991, we had the Rodney King stuff going on in California. Uh, there was a lot of civil disrest. African Americans were tired of their treatment by law enforcement by the media. There were instances where they would protest outside newsrooms. I don't think that the news journal wanted that kind of pressure put on them for just a story, recapping an old case, uh, as heinous as it was. But it's just, you're right, your research found very little written about the murder after the escape after he left. And it's true, there there was very little. The point is, is that law enforcement themselves gave up on the case quickly. And that's what struggled, I struggled with, is why did they stop looking for Lester? And you examined this in 2004. You're at another newspaper, the Akron Beacon Journal, and you cover this again in some fashion because of that question. Well, tell us what, that, what you learned. Right. Lester has always stuck with me. It just Again, it's just a strange case. Um, and I was going through looking at uh, the prison website, where they have the most wanted people, blah, blah, blah. Lester's not on there. So I try to get some contact. Well, who's, who's in charge? I, I couldn't get a straight answer from the prison as to who, what law enforcement agency is looking for him. Is the prison looking for him? Uh, is the highway patrol, which is the law enforcement for the prison system, were they looking for him? And everybody's saying, no. They kept pointing at each other. It's your case. No, it's your case. It's, no, it's not your case. It's my case. You know, nobody could give me a straight answer. The bottom line is no one was looking for him. In fact, arrest warrants were allowed to expire. There was a time in the 80s where Lester could have been pulled over and gave his true eye name, and he would not have been arrested because there was not an active warrant for his arrest. Wow. I, they just, there was no case. There was no effort to locate this guy. That's insane. It's, it's, it's just it's nuts. And I, I don't know if it was shame, embarrassment, that this is one of those cases where Law enforcement just wanted to forget about it because it, it looks so bad. That could be the possible uh, reason behind that. It's because it, obviously they they don't take inmates Christmas shopping anymore. But and there is some talk too, and I should say this is that there's questions about Lester having some help on the inside. That there were some family friends, family members working in the prison who got helped him get on that shopping to get on that reward list. Yeah, so. There's just a lot. There's a lot of dirt there, and um, you got to think he had help. How do you walk out of prison with no money, no clothes, and successfully begin a life somewhere else? I, you can't do that on your own. No, and he certainly had help. Word was that he, you know, left there, uh, went to Michigan. He had assistance. He had no money, and, and most folks believe that his father helped him in some fashion afterward. Eubanks family, uh, Lester has some, uh, a couple brothers or sisters. None of them would help law enforcement. There's zero cooperation there. Uh, Reverend Eubanks would do nothing to help them, wouldn't talk to them. So, the, yeah, there was a clear indication that somehow Lester was able to obtain a new identity, a new name, new Social Security number, and eventually made his way to California. And that's where they think that he's been for the majority of his life 
since escaping is out in California under an assumed name. There's some aliases that they've undercovered. And when they did that uh, America's Most Wanted piece, there was a woman who came and identified him as knowing him, but he'd already absconded and moved on. So wow. yeah, he's been able to survive that this long. For, he, you know, Frankly, he was one. If he gets caught tomorrow, he still wins because he had... He had All his whole life. He had his whole life. Absolutely. He, he killed a little girl, and he's, he never got punished for it. So the U.S. Marshals, uh, late last year, uh, boom, they're like, wait a minute. How has this guy been on the lam so long? How would something like this even come to the U.S. Marshals' attention, and why would it inspire them to move him up to their top 15 <clears throat> most wanted? I'm not, I'm not bragging, but I've known Pete Elliott, the U.S. Marshal for Northeast Ohio, and it was one of the things that I told him one of the first times I ever met him was probably on, he always talks about getting his man because that's what they do. The U.S. Marshal goes out and arrests people um, on warrants. And one of the first things, hey, I challenged him to, to find Lester. And that was probably 10 years ago. And he and I have always, you know, joked about the work that they're doing. So um, it's something that, that Pete Elliott has taken seriously now. Finally, um, someone has taken this case serious. It's one of those cases that always followed me through my career. 91 in Mansfield, 90, or 2004 at the Beacon Journal, and now at Channel 3. I've done multiple stories there on this. And what, is, what I'm encouraged about is there's finally going to be some national attention in the Internet age on this case. This case is going to be featured on Netflix um, coming up in the next year. And people in California are going to see this. People with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are going to share this story. And Lester's face is going to be plastered all over the country and shared on the Internet. You know, when we do stories here in Northeast Ohio or in Columbus, it doesn't get very much traction nationally. Finally, it's going to get some uh, national attention. And I think this is going to be the year that they catch them. Oh, boy. I imagine if you get on Netflix, game over. That's going to have quite an audience. So the marshal's office, when they put out their press release, it sounds like they know that he's alive. I mean, do they know a lot more than they can tell us? I mean, are they pretty confident he, he is alive? I mean, he'd be 75. Yeah, I think, I think they're confident that he's alive. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep looking for him. They were in contact with, with an associate of Lester's who said, you're never going to catch him. Um, and that tells them, number one, he's still alive. Because you're never going to catch him means he's still alive. So that's, that's the indication that they give us, that they believe, certainly, that even at age 75, he still lives. He's still under a, an assumed name. He's probably a grandfather. He's, he's probably his wife. You know, he's got this identity that he's never shared with anyone, presumably. What bothers me about this case is before this guy was even in his mid-20s, he had three sex assault cases, one of which ended in murder. You don't turn that off. No. I mean, what has he done the last 45 years? It's a great question. Has he done that to other, other girls? You're right, he doesn't turn it off. He didn't turn it off when he was a teenager and he assaulted, and then he didn't do it when he was in his 20s. And that's what's so strange is that his father just embraced him. Uh, yeah. I, a man I, I of God. Know. Yeah, a man of God. And it's just the, the hypocrisy is just mind-boggling. And you really feel, you see the interviews with, with Mary Ellen's sister, Myrtle, and the pain is still there after so many years. You know, she certainly didn't deserve what happened. And for Lester to win this way, to just thumb his nose at law enforcement the way that he has for 46 years now, 
It's just incredible. And you're right. And, you know, they're going to catch him, and then he's going to be in the system for the time of his life when he needs to be cared for medically and every other way. And then the taxpayer gets to, you know, handle that. Pay for his nursing home. Pay for his nursing home. But they, he got to spend the prime of his life probably wreaking havoc in a lot of lives. And yeah. we will probably never know the devastation he's wrought. Mm. Or living a good life. I mean, maybe he did manage to turn it off and control himself and turn things around. And he's just assumed this identity and he's living a law-abiding life. He may have. I don't believe it for a minute. I don't know. Um, if it had been one isolated case, maybe three, that's... Yeah, but then again, he, he did. He, he realized he wound up on death row, so he he knows that he, he went far. So I don't know. Yeah. It's it's tough to think about, but uh, it it would be interesting. It'd be a fun day when when he, when he's hauled in at least, and at least gives some. You know, it will be especially for you. It's, it's yeah, been a personal journey for yeah, you for I decades. I, I I look forward to being there. Yeah. It's just kind of I'd love to talk to the guy and just imagine how he's been able to just survive. 46 years without being caught. It's, it's amazing, you know. Well, maybe Could you imagine that happening today? I mean, how much national news this would be, you know, and this child killer escapes from prison, this would be all over the news every day. It would be a massive manhunt, you know, a dangerous person like this. And people all over the country would be questioning policies, even at their jails, mm-hmm. that give rewards to prisoners yeah. that allow them to be unaccompanied anywhere. Yeah. But you don't hear about ma- escape murderers because it doesn't happen. People don't escape from prison nowadays. Right. Very rare. And, you know, this one here is just its incredible. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't talked about? No, I think that, that about covers it. Right. I think it's a, it's a great case. I'm glad you're looking into it. And congratulations on the work that uh, you and Steve are doing. And best of luck to you. Phil, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. And uh, hopefully in a few months, we'll have another case for you. Terrific. I look forward to it. All right. Well, I would like to thank Phil also. He has been getting a lot of people trying to get interviews from him about this case, actually. It's exciting that he's come on here for the Ohio Mystery listeners. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. For photos, clippings, links, and more. For this and every episode, visit our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, how about a little bit more on our Ohio featured musical artist, Paula? So, at the start, you heard a little clip of Soft and Blue. That's a song by Damn the Witch Siren, which is the Columbus duo of Bobby Kitten and Z Wolf. I love that name. Ooh, Wolf. That's awesome. What, uh, they call their style of music Witch Rock. <laughs> you can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Learn more about the group at their website, damnthewitchsiren.com. And they've got a couple of performances scheduled for this summer. On June 29, they'll be taking the main stage at ComFest in Columbus. And if you're in Northeast Ohio, mark your calendar for July 5 when they'll be at Buzzbin in Canton. We have added Damn the Witch Siren to our featured music link on our website where you can get all of the great Ohio talent we've featured. Under that link, you can also click on our Spotify playlist and you can jam out to all of them while you're running or doing dishes or driving to work. But right now, turn up the volume. We're going to play that full version of Soft and Blue. And we'll see you right back here next week for a new Ohio Mystery.